0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Mirantis, where we break down the week's news on Kubernetes, the cloud-native ecosystem, open source, and the wider world of tech. I'm Eric Gregory. And I'm John Janeshaeg. This week, we're taking a look at the latest from the Moby project, the new Kubernetes without Kublet tool, plus the Silicon Valley bank collapse, the EU Cyber Resiliency Act, and more. So... That's a lot. Let's jump right in. Uh, and uh, the Moby release is probably closest to our hearts, so let's start there. Uh, the open-source Mobi project and Mirantis announced the first major release for container framework Mobi and the downstream Mirantis container runtime in two years, according to the release blog. Quote, the 23.0 release brings widely anticipated features like experimental container storage interface, CSI, and alternative OCI runtime support, as well as BuildKit by default, critical improvements to health checks and various other improvements such as more flexible sec comp and a new API version, unquote. It's worth zooming in on that experimental CSI report uh, support for a moment because that's a particularly cool one with a lot of potential for the future. By using the same storage drivers as Kubernetes, the Mobi project and MCR are unlocking an entire ecosystem of storage backends that you can plug and play with Swarm. This will be dependent on folks developing or adapting existing CSI drivers. But Moby maintainer and MCR engineer Bjorn Niergaard told me they're seeing a lot of community interest. And uh, repackaging drivers not directly coupled with Kubernetes should be relatively straightforward. If you're interested, you can get involved with that community effort at github.com slash O-L-L-J-A-N-A-T. That's the user slash CSI plugins for Docker Swarm uh, with hyphens in between there. Love of a URL via podcast and if you want to read more uh bjorn wrote a great release blog at marantis.com slash blog so let's uh let's stick in container land for a moment before we get to all the all the big you know world scale events uh john you saw a good comparison of
1: kubernetes managed services providers right i i did um i did elliot graybert who was director of engineering at skydio uh, wrote a Medium post dated February 1st, it was a while back, but still very current, it seems to me, in which he he meticulously compared eight of the top uh, cu- cloud Kubernetes providers. He calls them managed Kubernetes, but this is not, you know, what he's talking about is places you can go, click a couple of buttons, get a cluster. Uh, he compared AWS, Azure, Google, DigitalOcean, Linode, Scaleway, IBM Cloud, and OVH Cloud. Um, and he did the job right. Um, he set himself the challenge of using Terraform for fun—a single Terraform file, he says, to, to provision each system. Um, insofar as possible, he sought to, pro, to to favor provider defaults in order to simplify both the code that uh, you know he wrote uh, for for Terraform and to kind of test to see whether the defaults uh, were were sane. Um, and he invoked uh, Helm charts um, provided by the the software makers uh, to install. Uh, you know a, a practical workload that was uh, PostgreSQL and uh, the Coder platform, which is a a platform, self scaling platform for provisioning developer work workspaces on Kubernetes. Very cool thing, in fact. Yeah. So hypothetically, this is I mean it's, this is kind of step one of trying to set up a Kubernetes cluster for developers, right? And yeah. it should, in theory, not be a big fat hairy deal, right? <laughs> um, uh, PostgreSQL wants a persistent volume. Uh, and Coder wants a load balancer. And beyond that, it's not very esoteric and doesn't make a lot of you know uh, of demands on, on esoteric system add-ons or anything like that. So off Graebert went, and we're talking about a person of considerable skill who uses Kubernetes a lot. Off he went, and on the way, he took notes on platform sign-up, console experience, chart deployment experience, whether the target system offers same defaults, as I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, or not, and it turns out mostly not which is, you know, made for a fun section to read in any case, where he admits this is mostly cranking. And he even did a, a cost analysis of all eight providers, right? Um, a very thorough and good job. I think he took two, three days per provider to really do the job right. Um, and, you know, it's quite amazing that someone with a day job and a family was able to pull the time free to do this work. But thank you very much. We all benefit. Um So, he says in several places uh, in this medium piece um, that he shaped his attitude in what we think, anyway, is a very intelligent way. He says the goal is his goal was to get stuff running so that he could go back to writing code. And that's kind of a philosophical position that we hope a lot of people are taking these days with respect to, to Kubernetes. We think that's what most devs and devops folks should be prioritizing, where you can leave the platform and certainly with a hosted. And you know, a cloud-based Kubernetes service, you should be able to leave the platform engineering to the provider who should be finishing out platforms to enable developers to be maximally productive, period, right? Uh, and we sort of feel like unless developers start putting exactly this kind of requirement pressure on providers and on the, the the Kubernetes build-outs that they field, things will, like, never improve and Kubernetes will remain a source of pain and distraction and excess cost. So some highlights of Graybert's findings. Top of the heap. For overall developer experience and cost, were Linode, DigitalOcean, and Scaleway. The first two of whom earned green uh, green checks across the board for sign up console, Kate's console, provisioning, and sane defaults, and had reasonable pricing for the 10 nodes that uh, Grabert used in the example uh, of between 600 and 800 bucks a month uh, total. Um, he calls Linode the best for startups, mostly on the assumption that most startups won't have massive data, data handling challenges that uh, need to be met by storage and other services offered by, for example, the three major public clouds. Um, if you're looking for, in other words, a pure Kubernetes experience and you have light requirements for ancillary services, this may be a good answer for you. Um, of the majors, he says Azure is the best. For Kubernetes UI experience deployment speed on his example and on several other metrics, um, but maybe less so on general console experience, which is his is very complicated and availability of sideline services in which Azure perhaps lags behind the other two majors. Um, it, it's worth reading the whole thing though and not stopping with the summary. The article is, is very well written, it's very well organized, um, and it includes a lot of valuable commentary on user experience specifics, issues he encountered with Helm chart deployment, thinking about hardware types under Kubernetes and expected performance, uh, and various provider strategies for, you know, giving you the hardware that they give you under their Kubernetes clusters and whether these are good solutions or kind of, you know, loss later solutions. (laughs) And, uh, Uh, Several qualifications about his cost analysis, which was necessarily provided just for node costs and didn't include networking because his example was not making realistic, you know, uh, uh, traffic demands. Um, So um, really, really excellent job and an impressive, fun read, which, you know, will take a a, a deep person, maybe 30 minutes to dig through. Um, uh, And uh, finally, thanks uh, to Mr. Grabert for the shout out for Lens, which he says is, quote, vastly superior to any other dashboard he's seen. So thanks a lot.
0: Well, uh, speaking of Kubernetes and Kubernetes tools, uh, the official Kubernetes blog showcased a fascinating new tool called Quok, K-W-O-K, which stands for Kubernetes without Kubelet. The project simulates very large clusters with many, many nodes on a local machine. So you can test the scaled out operation of Kubernetes controllers or other tools without consuming tons of real world resources and burning money along the way. The announcement blog from Ximing Zhang, Wei Huang, and Yibo Zhuang defines Quoc's principal advantages as speed, compatibility, portability, flexibility, and performance, noting that you can spin up a simulated cluster more or less instantaneously and, quote, simulate thousands of nodes on your laptop without significant consumption of CPU or memory resources, unquote. They know that this is likely to be useful for development, testing, and learning. Uh, I gave it a download, and it really is just, trivially easy to get up and running uh, on the mac anyway you can just use homebrew and install with uh, brew install quok which installs the two major components quok and the cli tool quok control or quok cuddle uh, then it's just a simple quok cuddle argument name demo create cluster and you're off to the races uh, there's some overlap with use cases i think for minikube or kind and i could see it horning in on some of their mind share but the the real highlight. Uh, really seems to be the many-node simulation, and I'm kind of guessing a lot of folks are going to have it installed as one of several options for these kinds of jobs. Have you had a chance to play around with that at all? Uh, I, I saw- haven't.
1: I haven't yet, but uh, but yeah, when I when I ran across this article, I immediately pointed it out to to friends and and relations. Um, it's a really interesting project. They have um, to some extent simulated node functionality enough for you to actually begin to get an idea of what resource consumption will be. That is mm-hmm. to say, it's not a you know, it's not an entirely stubbed, uh, you know, simulation that's just useful for testing out deployment charts or you know, the kinds of other things that you could do with a stub stim, you know, stub simulation.
0: Right. It's, it's granular that, enough that you can really get some some more in depth kind of utility So out of
1: yeah, it. so that's so that's I mean that's really interesting and being able to put you know in effect uh, a, a huge cluster on a laptop you know and run it without the fans kicking on right is uh, you know is quite an achievement. Uh, I mean. <laughs> it's not like we haven't put clusters on laptops, but, uh, you know, it hurts them after a while.
0: Or have to pay a cloud provider to uh, do that testing. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and uh, also on the topic of not needlessly spending a ton of money on the cloud, uh, TechCrunch reports that startup Vantage raised $21 million in a Series A funding round to help drive their platform for analyzing and managing cloud costs. Good. Vantage serves customers including NASA, Square, PBS, and BuzzFeed, among others. According to the, uh, to TechCrunch at the outset, quote, the idea was to build a better AWS dashboard. As a part of this, the team built out a dashboard that helped its users visualize their AWS spend, which led the team to almost exclusively focus on this idea. Since then, Vantage has added support for Azure and GCP, but maybe even more importantly, it also added support for services like Datadog, Fastly, Databricks, Snowflake, New Relic, MongoDB, and Kubernetes clusters, with support for services like Twilio, PlanetScale, and IBM's and Oracle's clouds on the roadmap, unquote. Uh, I just love that this company started from how catastrophically bad the AWS console. Well, yeah, absolutely,
1: <laughs> I mean, when you, when you read this article, you, you just your your hair. I mean, but everybody has their own opinions, you know, on that as well. Um, sure. How <laughs> can you put seven hundred and twenty-eight services into one, you know, set of menus? It's indeed. You know, it's a, it's a uh, singular.
0: It's a singular UX. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, but uh, but there you go. I guess what astonishes me is that it's gotten to the point where serious investments are being made just around cost visualization on these combined platforms that the problem of complexity is so great and the potential cost downsides are so enormous that that this is now a problem that people are focusing significant efforts you know on on rectifying yeah um you know for a while it was feeling like you know, there were a couple of hinky solutions and maybe, you know, it's so an open source project or two, but nothing had a good front end. And now we're actually seeing, you know, slick stuff that hopefully will provide the kinds of answers that um, that operators are looking
0: for. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, money. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes,
1: the bad news. Uh, in fact, this is actually the Department of News. Everyone knows already if you've been, you know. If you're in the industry uh, and you've been on Twitter for the past uh, 72 hours, uh, on Friday, the Fed stepped in to close Silicon Valley Bank, um, whose uh, many billions, um, it's not 209 billion. It's more like um, 400 something billion, uh, of which 42 vanished on Thursday alone, Mm -hmm. um, make this the second largest bank failure in U.S. history after the 2008 collapse of Washington Mutual. Analysts quickly reported that the collapse might have been triggered by Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, urging coordinated withdrawal of deposits earlier in the week after a prior capital call directing funds towards SVP apparently encountered issues so that people couldn't get their funds in and suddenly and suddenly uh, calls were made to get funds out. Mm. Um, meanwhile, several execs at SVP uh, appear, including CEO Gregory Becker, CFO Daniel Beck and CMO Michelle Draper, uh, perhaps others as well sold several millions in shares ahead of the collapse starting in late February. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's probably unrelated. Um, SVP is, of course, also kind of a unique case because it's a big bank where many startups keep their cash. In fact, uh, startups in, in uh, um, conventional uh, electronics, high tech and, uh, and bio uh, life sciences uh, are in there. Uh, and the overall picture of how SVP became such a popular bank with startups seems to originate partly in the bank's history of, you know, praiseworthy history, I think of giving credit to new companies more easily than, than, uh, banks with a more commercial focus, um, and, and servicing around such, uh, you know, debt instruments more efficiently than, uh, than competitors. And then perhaps more dubiously in VCs urging funded startups into keeping their money there for various reasons. Um, The ultimately, this meant that a lot of SBPs accounts, maybe between ninety-seven and ninety-eight percent, were over the FDIC limit of two hundred and fifty k. You know, company size accounts typically will be, and thus uh, uh, were uninsured, which is scary for everyone, but particularly for founders who had to meet payroll obligations this week. By late Friday, many were scrambling for bridge loans and other temporary sources of funds to stay in business, um, and their pain was painful to watch. A lot of them uh, were uh, were quite open about their struggles uh, on Twitter and and other venues, and it was uh, kind of vertiginous and, and, and uh, nausea-inducing to see, you know, honest people who thought that they were going to work every day in fear, you know, like this. Um, folks familiar with the standard shutdown process explained uh, on Friday that over the weekend, the Fed would be searching for a buyer and a deal to make all depositors entirely whole on Monday morning, as predicted by several smart people, including Heidi Moore, ex-Wall Street Journal, Guardian US and Marketplace. Um, they weren't able to, they, they, they wouldn't be able to find a prestige buyer by Sunday night. Uh, and indeed, uh, they were not. In Washington Mutual's case uh, in 2008, this was all planned far in advance. Into this tense uh, situation, meanwhile, came news on Sunday that NYC's signature bank had been summarily closed by New York state regulators. Uh, Other more established banks like JP Morgan, Schwab, and so on, um, have meanwhile all been suffering from exposure to SVP as investors, but for the moment seem adequately capitalized to weather the current storm. So the general news out of Washington this morning uh, is do not panic. By this morning, the Fed has apparently decided that no SVP depositor would take a haircut. And President Biden is now at pains to talk pretty much everyone down off the parapet, delivering the message that the banking system is safe, that only investors would take their lumps, that no taxpayer-funded bailouts would be forthcoming, and that regulations would eventually be strengthened to prevent this happening again. This is Dodd-Frank stuff. Um, By midday Monday, the Twitter discourse was, however, all about the moral hazard of bailouts. Um, So, you know, the truth value of this is being uh, assessed. Um, and the politics around it um, also it was just announced at the time of this recording or just prior that HSBC would buy Silicon Valley Bank's UK arm which lets some British tech firms breathe easier in any case this is an evolving story and there may be more exciting news later in the week uh, it's been a long week already it feels like and it's only Monday
0: so uh, yeah no stress everyone just <laughs> just all chilling on the monday but yeah, uh yeah, yes, but, it. Uh, yeah a, a um seems like a a better um psychological state than over the weekend say that, <laughs> we'll say that. Oh, and
1: it feels it does feel a little different than the lehman crisis you yeah. know um but you never know about crises until they're well past right i mean you know don't scare the horses
0: indeed well another uh sort of Larger-scale, wider industry news, Uh, in the EU, negotiations continue on a proposed Cyber Resiliency Act, which could have a sweeping impact on the entire industry by introducing risk assessments and security requirements for a wide swath of products. While the legislation uh, clearly has IoT devices squarely in mind, the language uh, of the draft right now covers any product with a, quote, digital element, unquote, defined as any software or hardware that connects to a network and handles data excluding a couple of categories like military hardware and medical devices, which are covered by other legislation. So that's a pretty broad remit. And if passed, the legislation would require covered entities to take steps, including producing software bills and materials, managing vulnerabilities via ongoing testing, patching, and documentation, uh, conforming to pre-established pattern pattern, standards and patterns or statterns, apparently. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) via my mouth, per product category, uh, reporting incidents within 24 hours, and more with noncompliance penalties in the millions of euros. So the reasoning here is essentially that this has been kind of an unregulated Wild West up until now. And after high-profile vulnerabilities like Heartbleed, Log4Shell, and so on, the legislative body would like to change that and particularly insulate consumers from fallout. There's widespread concern in the open-source community, however, that through multiple revisions, the proposed language has continued to put the burden of security on open-source developers. Uh, While a clause called Recital 10 seems to attempt to exclude open-source projects from the requirements, it has arguably introduced even more confusion and uh, concern. So here's the text of that Recital 10. Quote, In order not to hamper innovation or research, free and open-source software developed or supplied outside the course of a commercial activity should not be covered by this regulation. This is in particular, the case for software, including its source code and modified versions that is openly shared and freely accessible, usable, modifiable, and redistributable. In the context of software, a commercial activity might be characterized not only by charging a price for a product, but also by charging a price for technical support services, by providing a software platform through which the manufacturer monetizes other services, or by the use of personal data for reasons other than exclusively for improving the security compatibility or interoperability of the software, unquote. So the confusion and the complexity here hinges on the phrase outside the course of a commercial activity. Would this apply to a project upstream of a commercial product where the maintainers are employed by the vendor of that product, for example? Organizations ranging from open-source advocacy groups to major tech players believe Recital 10 will cause significant problems if it goes forward with that language. Uh, The Open Source Initiative writes, quote, "...we recognize that the European Commission has framed an exception in Recital 10 attempting to ensure these provisions do not accidentally impact open-source software. However, drawing on more than two decades of experience, we at the Open Source Initiative can clearly see that the current text will cause extensive problems for open-source software." OSI recommends further work on the open source exception to the requirements within the body of the act to exclude all activities prior to commercial deployment of the software and to clearly ensure that responsibility for CE marks does not rest with any actor who is not a direct commercial beneficiary of deployment. Leaving the text as it is could chill or even prevent availability of globally maintained open source software in Europe, unquote. Uh, Microsoft, meanwhile, says, quote, There is ambiguity resulting from the intersection of OSS with commercial activity, both in the context of infrastructure and services provided to open source projects and with regard to activities that open source projects may pursue while building OSS. The infrastructure and services provided to open source projects should be out of scope, regardless of commercial status, commercial services, enabling the effective use of OSS such as technical support and consulting services should also be out of scope and not bring OSS offerings into scope unquote. Uh, There's a really great like, hour-plus-long in-depth discussion of the bill on a new podcast called Fossified, hosted by open-source venerables uh, Daniel Stenberg, Henrik Seincliffe, uh, Magnus Hagander, and Johan Uh, and definitely recommend giving that a listen. And also, as an aside, kind of related, it's worth noting that uh, Stenberg, the developer and maintainer behind Curl, is celebrating Curl's 25th birthday this month. Great guy. Uh, well worth following on Twitter, too. Indeed.
1: Um, What an interesting story this is. Um for iot devices i mean when you think about the kinds of projects that might be involved this goes down to like stuff that drives messages across light arrays on raspberry pi hats and you know i, I, I it's it's hard to imagine that such projects such fine-grained projects would ever be required to get it you know to get a c mark and maintain you know, yeah. and, and maintain security standards. Uh, you know, it, it's it's certainly one thing. I mean, if somebody comes up with an open source framework for for devices that if they expect an entire industry to adopt, and they have a way to monetize it, that you know, the their direct monetization of it would be would be the you know the 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 trigger uh, that brings them you know the obligation to secure it. But otherwise,
0: why? I mean. Indeed. Anyway, it'll be curious to see how this plays out. Certainly will. And that's it for today. A, a note of uh, of uncertainty, but hey, celebration for twenty five years of curl. You know,
1: that's, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll the plate. Ides of March March is coming up. I mean, you know, it's a good. It's a, it should be a good week. <laughs> well,
0: uh, you know. Any ID's related disasters notwithstanding, Radio Cloud Native releases every other week, and you subscribe can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast provider, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the rest. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye.